News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Why are Russia and Vladimir Putin risking so much by invading Ukraine and just thumbing their noses at the international community? There was constant urging and pressure from world leaders to prevent military action against Ukraine, but none of that seemed to matter last night as the tanks and the and the air bombardment began. Why has this happened? Now that the community, international community, is mobilizing in response, what kind of a, a check could that be against this aggression? Well, let's talk about how we got here. Joining us now is Dr. Balkan Devlin, who's a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, where he leads the Transatlantic Program. Thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, thanks for having me. Could you explain to us, first of all, what is this obsession that Vladimir Putin and Russia seems to have with Ukraine? Um, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a long story, but it was building up. Uh, there are a few things that drive uh, Putin's behavior. One, a historical obsession about sphere of influence and a sense of entitlement among the Kremlin elite that they somehow deserve a right over other independent nations' uh, faith and decisions. Um, this is coupled with a paranoia uh, about Russia uh, being threatened uh, by uh, other countries uh, being being going democratic. And in that sense, they do have a sense, they do have a right uh, uh, view, uh, because more democratic and, and prosperous the uh, the countries around Russia, it will be, it will be much more clear that a kleptocratic regime in, in Russia is not in the, in the interest of, of Russian people. So they are uh, concerned and worried about an independent uh, democratic Ukraine uh, going forward. So when you combine those historical grievances and senses of entitlement, paranoia, and uh, you know, worrying about a democratic Ukraine being an example for Russian people demanding a similar regime, uh, this is where we end up. Is this something that the Russian people agree with? I was reading about Russian propaganda telling the Russian people that they were denazifying Ukraine, that this was all about denazification. What is, what is that? Um, it's, it's pure uh, Kremlin propaganda, of course. Um, just for your listeners, if, if they're not, they not aware, uh, President Zelensky of, of Ukraine is, is a Jewish Ukrainian and the uh, second uh, Ukrainian, uh, second head of state in the world, except uh, the head of Israel uh, as, uh, as, as a Jewish uh, head of state. Um, the whole notion of, uh, you know, Kremlin, uh, Kiev is run by uh, Nazis is pure uh, Kremlin lies and propaganda aimed at creating the conditions at home uh, for the, uh, you know, the, the, the atrocities they are planning against um, the democratically elected government um, in, in Kiev. And it's very hard to understand what the, or, or sort of gauge the, uh, what the, the, the average Russian uh, thinks about. It's very hard to get you know, proper uh, independent polls. Um, I would say uh, most of them will be shocked um, uh, the, with, with the war. But a lot of them would also be uh, quite, you know, uh, apathetic, basically, um, you know, shrugging and, and moving on. This is not the choice of the Russian people. This is the choice of a small Kremlin elite that robs uh, the country and in, you know, in, in advance to advance their paranoid visions, uh, they are uh, plunging Russia into disaster as well. 
So you said plunging Russia into disaster. Is that because of what could happen to Russia in response? Like what can the international community do that would, I don't know, show Russia that this is a mistake? Uh, I mean, there are a few things that can be done, but it is even a, a longer, longer vision, the way uh, that Putin shuts off and isolates uh, Russia, the way that he uses countries' resources to invade uh, and terrorize other countries instead of investing uh, in their own uh, people. In response, what the West can do and should do is, at minimum, impose all those uh, severe sanctions that have been talked about, including cutting off uh, Russian uh, oil and gas imports, imposing uh, you know, financial sanctions, kicking Russia out of international financial markets, sanctioning their banks, sanctioning the oligarchs, seizing, the, uh, seizing and freezing the uh, properties and bank accounts, the uh, Kremlin's cronies uh, here in the West, uh, kicking them and their families out. So there is a lot that the West can do to increase the pain on Kremlin and its supporters um, uh, in, in both in the short term and the medium term. In the long term, unfortunately, Putin's decisions will put, uh, put Russia and the Russian people 25 years behind. Wow. 20. Dr. Devlin, you mentioned the international markets there. It, is that the thing that could have the biggest impact then is cutting uh, Russia and the oligarchs and Putin himself off from money in the international markets? That will be the, well, one of the biggest ones. The other one, of course, the real one that would have significant impact, and I'm not sure that the West is ready to go through it, which is unfortunate, is sanctions on Russian oil and gas. That's where the money is coming from. That's the funds that provide put in the resources to terrorize and invade uh, countries around. Um, so if we, that, but I'm, I'm not sure that that is unfortunately forthcoming, given the uh, gas dependency, uh, particularly of Europe uh, and elsewhere, and, and, and Russian oil's importance in, in international markets. If we can cut off, you know, block or sanction uh, Russian oil and gas uh, exports, that will be the biggest blow uh, to Putin's war machine. Right. It's also right now, I mean, it seems like China is saying, go ahead, Russia, and do this. Is support from China significant here? Um, what is more significant is that they are not obstructing it. I think their support will remain limited on areas that will not cost much to, uh, to, to Beijing. They will not go up and, and politically and militarily and economically uh, support Russia in a way that will harm their interests. But what is interesting and important is that they are not standing in the way or obstructing or trying to reverse uh, Kremlin's decision-making, enabling uh, Russia, in other words, to do what it wants to do. What does it want with Ukraine once it has it? Uh, Like I said, there are a few few points. One of them is the vassalization of Ukraine. Um, Basically, what what Putin wants is a, a regime that is beholden to a Kremlin, that is weakened, that is not pursuing an independent path uh, in international um, system. He couldn't get that back in 2014 when he first invaded uh, Ukraine and annexed uh, Crimea. He tried to do that through a hybrid warfare and subversion in the past eight years. And now he is engaging in another invasion, this time a wholesale invasion of Ukraine uh, to achieve the vassalization uh, of Ukraine and Ukrainian people, and uh, we need to we need to stop them. We'll see what happens, Dr. Devlin. Thank you for your time this morning. Uh, thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi.
seeing Russian attacks. In fact, the Polish Red Cross told Global News in the last few days that as many as 50,000 people are expected to cross the border each day. And officials in Poland have said they are preparing to receive and assist as many people as possible. Some organizations are there already trying to help. We're speaking now with Chad Martz, who's the Director of Operations of Hungry for Life in Ukraine. Chad, hello. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Where are you right now? I'm currently in the uh, western part of Ukraine uh, in the Carpathian Mountains. So we're we're in an area that most people would be fleeing to as it's probably the, the safest con- safest part of the country. So is it fairly quiet from your vantage point from what you can see there right now? Well, it's, uh, you know, we've got a lot of people in, in a lot of the different cities uh, across Ukraine that we've been in contact with. And where we are, yeah, it's, you know, it's general calm. It's the, it's just, it's actually quite amazing, um, Ukrainian people and how resilient uh, they are to um, crises like this. But, yeah, you do see, like, the long lines at the bank uh, because there's a limited amount of funds that can be um, received from people. There's... Um, a lot of people in the stores that are are purchasing um, food, and so uh, yeah, you're not seeing like uh, um, people like uh, climbing over each other to get to supplies and materials. But uh, yeah, it's it's definitely increased. The the tension has definitely increased as of this morning. So, Chad, how can you prepare for this? What what do you think could happen over the next few days, and how will your organization uh, be helping out? Yeah, so we, we've already been starting to prepare for it um, in terms of being able to have access to, to resources so that um, uh, we can receive funding from those who want to, you know, contribute to, from from Canada to help support uh, those who are fleeing um, and leaving everything behind. Uh, and so this is what we've been doing leading up to now, and uh, we didn't want to preemptively do too many major things, but as of this morning, yes, we've been... And actually, right now, still um, purchasing a lot of food, su- food supplies, getting access to uh, logistically, making sure that uh, we're we're getting enough um, food and and uh, clothing and beds and um, just everything that's going to be required to uh, host people who are currently on their way um, to the west here. Do you hope to stay in that particular location, Chad, for as long as possible? Yeah, it's uh, it was a decision that we made a while ago and. Again, like if if the battle comes to our to our front door, um, we'll just have to relook and reassess that because I mean I've got uh, you know family here that I'm responsible for, uh, but as of right now we're we're situated in a really good position. We have a, a really good network here. Uh, we're working with the local churches uh, and uh, to be able to provide um, safe shelter for people. So yeah, the the. The idea and the goal is to stay here as long as we possibly can to help as many people as we can. And Chad, when you talk to people, how are they feeling about what's happening? Oh, there's it's almost a little bit of disbelief, um, anger is is there, frustration. Um, again, it's it's like the the bully on the playground mentality in terms of you know you're you're. <laughs> You're being beaten by a, a bigger, stronger person for, for no reason, for, for no reason at all. And how much this affects so many different people here, yeah, there's a lot of frustration, there's a lot of anger, there's, um, you know, anxiety from those people who are currently in the, the conflict zone. Um, 
so yeah, people are um, people are not necessarily shocked uh, because they've been dealing with the threat of this for for so long, for eight years. But now that it's actually happening um, with the outside of the the previous conflict zone in, in the Donbass, it's uh, yeah, it's it's tough. It's a tough one for for everyone. That's uh, that's. Uh, well, listen, best of luck. Uh, thank you for talking to us this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me. Stay safe. That is Chad Martz, Director of Operations of Hungry for Life in Ukraine. Uh, he and his family are from Chilliwack, uh, and his wife is Ukrainian. They have been there for some time, as you heard him say. Uh, they are located in a part of the country right now where they expect to start seeing and receiving people from other areas that are under attack uh, by Russia, and so they are preparing for that. We'll check back in with Chad over the next couple of weeks and see uh, how, what is happening there. Obviously, the big question now is what will the international community do in response? Uh, we, I think the world really is waiting to see what the United States says and what the UK Prime Minister says. Canada, likely, as we heard from Mercedes Stevenson, not going to speak about actions until after that has happened. So that will be at some point today. Will the international community cut off the finance of Russia? Will they cut them off from financial markets? Will they cut them off from the sales of oil and gas? Those are all the big questions to really have an impact here. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, how are Canadians feeling these days after a couple of weeks, well, several weeks now, of protests, disruptions and trucker convoys? We know one thing. It's the end of the Emergencies Act, as the Prime Minister announced that it was no longer going to be used, no longer in force. But let's sum up how Canadians are feeling at this point. Joining us now is Sean Simpson, Ipsos Vice President of Public Affairs. Good morning, Sean. Good morning. So how are Canadians feeling about this? Well, I think they're relieved it's over, but frustrated that it uh, that it began in the first place. Uh, there's a lot of blame to go around. Uh, a lot of it actually being uh, hurled at the prime minister. And the slim majority think that because the prime minister decided to uh, treat the pandemic as a political issue, uh, that uh, he, he was uh, part of the, the blame to stoke the fires. You know, some blame also goes, of course, to the conservative leadership for encouraging the, the protesters at the start. Some of the blame goes to provincial premiers for uh, enacting uh, uh, what some believe are, are severe measures and, and being too long to uh, uh, to get rid of them. Uh, so overall, Canadians just kind of not happy with anybody, and, and nobody's coming out of this uh, particularly strong. Really, was there what was support like for the protests and the and the truckers and the convoy? Uh, did it change at all during during the polling? Well, our polling uh, towards the start of the of the uh, convoy showed that uh, roughly forty six percent of Canadians uh, said that they sympathize with the truckers, that they have legitimate grievances, and uh, and that it's it's worthy of 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 us listening to them and, and doing something about it. Fifty four percent said, "Nope, this is this is not okay." And actually, those figures didn't change over the course of those three weeks, you know, regardless of what happened and, and the, the blockades at the border in Windsor and, and how everything went down. Uh, Canadians were pretty firm in those positions throughout the last three weeks. Okay. And so you were saying that they there was enough blame going around here. Did anybody come out of this with a good level of support? Well, actually, the provincial premiers uh, of all of the, the the major players actually came out with the highest approval rating at 53%. And in fact, in Ontario, where we had sort of a double-barreled protest, one at the Windsor border and, and one in Ottawa, 
uh, Premier Doug Ford actually has a slightly higher approval rating of how he handled the situation than Prime Minister Trudeau. Doug Ford was primarily responsible for, for dealing with the, the, the situation in Windsor, and he moved a lot quicker than the Prime Minister did in Ottawa. So that could be uh, having a role there. Uh, when it comes to support for the, the truckers, it was 36% who approved of you know their performance, their tactics. Now, that doesn't sound very good, but... When you compare 36% for the truckers to 43% for the prime minister, yeah. that's only seven point difference. You know, so the prime minister can't be that happy about it. Right. So for you then, Sean, the most striking number here was that 52% of people who said they found the prime minister to be kind of divisive on this. Yeah, that, that's right. And, and, and they blame him and they blame um, uh, the economy in, in some respects. You know, we're seeing a lot of... Uh, uh, divides by uh, two major cleavages. One is age, and one is socioeconomic status. And younger people, less affluent people, are uh, generally speaking more likely to be supporting the protests. Uh, and and a majority of younger people say that you know if if uh, Canadians weren't hurting and suffering economically as much as they are, that the protests would have never happened in the first place. Older people, this is a law and order kind of situation. Get your vaccines, stop protesting. Younger people, it's, well, if we didn't feel like we were left behind, then maybe we wouldn't have anything to protest about. Right. And what about the Conservative Party on that side of things? How did, because quite a few of those MPs openly sided with the protests and the trucker convoy. How did their rating come out? Well, they're sandwiched somewhere between the prime minister and the truckers. So it was 43% for the prime minister, 38% for the conservative party leaders, 36% for the, for the truckers. So clearly, uh, you know, it would have rallied some of their base, particularly from Western Canada, but they're going to vote conservative anyways. Uh, for the rest of the, the country, they're looking at the conservative leaders and saying, geez, maybe that wasn't the right thing to do at the time. Oh boy. So there's lots, lots of blame, it sounds like, to go around. Yeah, absolutely. But there is also an acknowledgement that things have happened as a result of the protest. A slim majority of Canadians at uh, at 54 percent believe that the trucker protests had at least some responsibility for the loosening of COVID restrictions that we're seeing in many in many provinces. Twenty percent say that was the sole reason. Uh, but then another 34 uh, percent say, well, it, 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 it had some impact. So when you add those together, it's 54 percent. And I think this is now changing the way that people are are seeing protests because many have acknowledged that they, they've made a difference. So now we have, you know, uh, younger people, again, 35 uh, percent uh, of them saying, I might join something similar in the future to change government policy. Now, it might not be about this. It might be about climate change. But one in three younger people are saying, you know, this has opened my eyes to what, you know, people can do when they come together in support of a cause. So interesting. All right. Thanks so much, Sean. My pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we all got a good look at BC's financial picture this week as Finance Minister Selena Robinson revealed our budget, not just for this year, but a look at the fiscal plan for the next couple of years. And there's a lot of questions about that, right? So let's get to it. Joining us now is Selena Robinson, BC's Minister of Finance. Thank you very much for joining us. Good morning, Cindy. Thank you for having me. Now, clearly one of the big things in the budget is just how much money is being brought in through the real estate market in this province. How big of a difference was that this year versus years past? Um, well, it's a, it's, a, it's a significant difference. We certainly saw how active the market was during the, um, during the sort of the height of the pandemic when things uh, were, you know, moving very quickly. Uh, what, what we were seeing, and I, I, I want to take people back 
to um, you know er, you know early 2020, late 2019, early 2020, which feels like the way I, I described it is like the before times. Um, and we were seeing actually some moderation in the market. Um, the efforts that we had been making around you know uh, cracking down on tax fraud, addressing speculation in the market, building more housing, uh, we were seeing you know certainly record numbers of rental coming to market. We were we were making some headway, um, and then the pandemic came, and it really did, did change buying behavior. It changed people's decision making, and we started to see a very 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 active market, um, and and that certainly created um, you know some additional challenges for sure, right. around affordability and housing. And, and, so and much money coming in. Yeah, so much money coming in now to provincial coffers, Absolutely. though. Does that not speak to a problem there, though? Does that not concern you? It seems so overheated, so out of control. It, it, it is overheated, and that's why you know we're, we're doing our be- level best to continue to build the kind of housing that people need and that they can afford. And that's why we're spending $1.2 billion every year building um, housing for middle-income families and for low-income families, making sure that there's opportunities for them to find a house that meets their needs. And I want you to know that's three times more than, uh, than was spent in 2017. So we are spending, taking those resources and we're plowing it right back into building the kind of housing that people need right around the province. Right, but not all of it, right? I mean, you're only spending a, a portion of the, real, the money that real estate is generating on actual housing. And, and, and we don't know, you know, if that's going to be sustained. We, we do predict that that's going to moderate somewhat um, over the over the next um, number of years and in terms of, you know, what revenues will come in from that. But again, you know, we have a lot of work to do ahead of us. We've already, you know, done a significant amount of work. Uh, we're certainly engaging with local governments, making sure that we have more supply and making sure that we have the right supply. That's been one of the challenges that we've had over the last of decade and a half, we were building and building and building. And I remember being on city council in Coquitlam and asking developers, why are you only building bachelors and, and, and uh, one bedroom suites in these towers as SkyTrain was coming online in Coquitlam? And then, okay, well, that's what the market demands. But what we've, we've learned since then is that the market that they were speaking to was an investor market off-seas. Um, and, and this was, you know, um, generating sort of a heated market. And so what we've done is we've said, you need to do a housing needs assessment. You need to identify what kind of housing do you need for British Columbians, people who are working here, and make sure that you're making those decisions, local governments, that meet the needs of, of people here, not for investors, uh, but homes for people to live in. And, and that work is continuing and making sure that we have a good partnership between local governments, the provincial government, and now that the federal government is back in housing, um, hopefully we can, the three orders of government can continue to work together to deliver housing, mm-hmm. the kind of housing that people need and can afford. One of the other really noticeable things, though, is how much money in the budget is in sort of contingencies. You've got billions of dollars in contingencies. Mm-hmm. What do you expect to use that for, and why Why not specify that? Why, why leave such a large amount of money in a contingency fund? So there's, there's two two contingency um, buckets, if I can call them that. Um, the, the first one is the pandemic uh, and recovery contingency. That's $2 billion uh, in 22-23 and then a billion dollars uh, the following year, the fiscal plan, and then nothing in the, in the third year of the fiscal plan. And I just want to remind everybody, you know, we have seen this pandemic uh, twist and turn all the way along. None of us predicted Omicron. Uh, we didn't anticipate, you know, uh, you know, the public public health orders coming down saying that, um, you know, that, that restaurants needed to close, you know, back in, in 2020 or that gyms couldn't, you know, needed to close um, more recently with Omicron. And so making sure that we have a reserve set aside to support those businesses and to support people, to make sure that we can buy the PEE, the PPE for frontline workers. Like these are all the things that we put in contingency in the pandemic and recovery contingency um, because we do not know still 
what this pandemic has in store for in store for us. And I know that British Columbians want their government to be ready, to be absolutely ready for, for what happens. Um, the second part of contingency is, you know, there are expenses that do come up during the year that are unanticipated. We also um, are uh, heading to the the bargaining table with uh, public sector unions. And so we've built in, you know, what we anticipate that might cost us in, in part of that contingency. And we have other um, other items um, I had mentioned, sort of, you know, sort of unexpected items that do come up. And, and there's always a contingency built into any government plan because you need to be prepared. What about that bargaining then, going in there with public service employees? What, what do you, when do you expect to get that underway? Um, that's, that's um, you know, the, the, um, we're, we're just heading into that season right now. Uh, bargaining will happen at the bargaining table. One of the other things, and we talked to Von Palmer about this as well a couple of times, is the penalty that was removed for cabinet ministers if ministers no longer balance the budget for their ministry. Why do that? I mean, it wasn't a huge penalty, but it was just a sign to the public that you, you take this seriously in terms of balancing the budget, staying within your means. Why remove that penalty? So it's... The, the holdback, the holdback provision is based on a value that says um, that you should make cuts uh, in order to balance the budget. Like that, that's the expectation of government is you should make cuts in order to balance the budget. That the balancing the budget is a higher priority than taking care of British Columbians. And frankly, I don't think that's the case. I think, you know, we, we have an obligation as government to make sure that the supports are there for people when they need them. And I think we've demonstrated that over the last number of years. Um, and we still have work to do. We've seen what's happened with the, with the forest fires and with the flooding. We have an obligation to make sure that people are safe, that we protect them. Um, and, and I, you know, so, so a provision that is based on a value that says make cuts because balancing a budget is the absolute priority, the number one priority, I think is, is in the wrong direction. So when you look at year two and year three of your fiscal plan, then there, there doesn't look like there is going to be a balanced budget. So where is that on the priority? Well, balancing the budget is absolutely, uh, you know, a part of, uh, you know, the, the plan, making sure that we get there. Um, and so you can see um, declining deficits, which is absolutely an indication of our uh, commitment to get back to balance, making sure that we have, you know, um, that we can afford the, the deficit and the debt. Uh, you can see that our um, um, our, our numbers um, are, are, are well below 25 percent debt to GDP numbers. Um, and that's another indicator that we are you know, well within our means. Uh, we have a diverse economy. We have a robust economy. And we have British Columbians that are dedicated to each other to do the right thing, to keep each other safe, and to make sure that we can, can keep as much open as possible, which is why we have done so well together, uh, is making sure that we are taking care of each other. And so investing in people and uh, making sure that we have a strong society, making sure that we have a strong environment, all of this together make sure that we have a strong economy will get us back to balance. And so we're choosing to invest in people, we're choosing to invest in the environment, we're choosing to invest in the economy, and that, at the end of the day, I think is what's best for British Columbia. Right. So when you look down the line, though, past year three, at what point do you see the budget being balanced? Well, I think, you know, that's a, that's a process. And, you know, I would love to be able to tell you exactly what's going to happen in year seven. Uh, we said we would uh, be able to get to balance in seven to nine years. We said that last year. We anticipate that we'll be able to do that. Um, but as you've seen, you know, the, the budget that I was putting together through September and October um, started to look very different, um, you know, by the end of November when we saw the impacts of the flooding. Um, and so one of the things that I think we need to all recognize is climate change is here and we need to be investing in making sure that people are protected, that communities are safe. I do not want to see another Lytton. I think that that, that you know, it's just um, I'm still shocked 
at, at how quickly that, that community disappears. Um, and so I think it's important that governments invest, invest in our future. Is that, so we are, is that yeah. what we're going to hear about this morning then? I know there's an announcement coming up this morning about climate change. Will there be an investment? Well, I, what you're going to hear this morning is more about what we're doing with this budget, how it's being played out, where we're investing. And so that's the, uh, the announcement that you're going to hear tomorrow about what, what we're doing to make sure that communities are protected and that people are protected given that climate change and we have, um, you know, climate, uh, weather-related climate that is um, um, uh, very challenging and we need to be prepared. And that's our investment in this budget. All right. Thank you very much for your time this morning. Okay. All right. Have a great day. You Bye-bye. too. Selena Robinson, BC's Minister of Finance. Now that announcement that I just mentioned there is coming up this morning. It involves quite a few ministers, actually. Uh, there'll be the Minister of Finance will be there, along with Mike Farnworth, the Public Safety Minister, the Forest Minister, along with the Environment Minister, George Heyman. And it says it's a climate change announcement. It sure sounds to me like something involving quite a bit of money is going to be announced. Doesn't it sound that way to you? This is Mornings with Simi. One of the big questions, of course, this morning is what will the United States do now that Russia has gone ahead and invaded Ukraine? Let's get the latest developments on that front. Joining us, Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. When will we hear from President Biden? We are expected to hear from the president, at least according to uh, the most recent update from the White House, around 1230 Washington time, so 930 a.m. Vancouver time. And this is uh, being said to be delivering remarks on, quote unquote, Russia's unprovoked and unjustified attack on Ukraine. It's going to come after his meeting with the G7. It's going to come after he convened an emergency meeting of his National Security Council earlier this month. And it is going to come after uh, phone calls uh, with uh, the Ukraine. Ukrainian president uh, over the last seven or eight hours to promise that there is going to be an international push of support into uh, into Ukraine. Okay, so that seems like a lot of expectation. Then. Is, is there uh, the understanding that there is going to be an announcement about what kind of sanctions potentially Russia is going to face? It is likely that we are going to hear what the sanctions are going to be. Uh, it is unknown what those sanctions might be. You have to remember when the United States levied the sanctions that they put on uh, on the Kremlin, on uh, on people within uh, President Bi- uh, President Putin's inner circle, and on these Russian banks, they were said it, that they were going in uh, at a severe level and that they would only escalate from beyond that. Does that mean that they will go after uh, some of the more state-owned banks across Russia and potentially get in the way of the average Russian person? It is a possibility. They could go after. Uh, their access to the Western financial markets uh, and freeze assets, making it impossible to use Russian-issued credit cards. That would obviously deal a blow to the Russian economy. There is an opportunity here to uh, sanction President Putin himself. It is a rare move. It is uh, it is uh, kind of an unprecedented move. It has been used on uh, people like Muammar Gaddafi in the past to try and limit their movements and limit their access to the financial markets. But we have to remember, Russia is very rich. They have hundreds of billions of dollars in a rainy day fund here. Uh, so sanctions, while they may have a long-term impact on the country, uh, it's still questionable as to whether they're going to do anything to deter any immediate action. And what is the reaction like from domestic politicians in the United States? I know the U.S., the, the administration had been sharing a lot of intelligence about what they knew, about what was going on, turns out accurate intelligence about what was going to happen and so there but on other on both sides of the aisle here there had been some skepticism 
Well, I mean, look, uh, politics in the United States divided, you know, color anybody surprised here. But there is, uh, you know, there was a kind of a broad bipartisan push to have the president take some kind of tough action uh, on Russia. The problem is, is that Republican politicians are now trying to drown out some of that message. We we heard from the former president not all that long ago praising uh, Vladimir Putin. We've had Republicans pushing back on the administration, saying that the sanctions that they put on the Kremlin and on people around President Putin were too little too late, given the fact Ukraine had been calling for severe and strict sanctions to be placed in a proactive, not a reactive fashion. That said, there is still a broad push within Washington to try and get some kind of resolution here to ensure that Ukraine, uh, that, that Russia doesn't go any further, understanding that there are American interests in Eastern Europe that could potentially be threatened should this uh, ultimately spill out. That is not something anyone wants to see. Nobody wants to see this cross outside of Ukraine's border into a potential NATO nation because that would become a, a whole brand new set of problems that the United States doesn't want to get into. Polling shows there is no domestic appetite here for the United States to meddle itself in the war or the military operation between Russia and Ukraine. Okay, so once again, then what is the timeline for this? When will we expect to hear from the president? Expected to hear from the president sometime in the next two and a half, three hours. There could be a potential delay here. The situation is fluid. There's a lot of information going back and forth, but expect there to be an announcement of tough sanctions being put from Washington onto uh, the Kremlin in conjunction with sanctions that are expected to come from the U.S. allies throughout the day. All right, Reggie, thank you. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. One of the areas where sanctions, especially on Russian billionaires and and Russian financiers, will be immediately felt, the impact will be immediately felt, will be in the UK. So there's a lot of eyes on what the UK administration of Prime Minister Boris Johnson will do. For instance, um, a very well-known Russian billionaire is the owner of the UK football club Chelsea. And there are quite uh, two of them, actually. Two Russian oligarchs own two different uh, UK football clubs, big ones. And the question is, well, do you sanction them? They are known to be part of the inner circle. Do you sanction them and say, you can't do business in the UK anymore? What happens to these great big UK entities that are so closely entwined with Russian finances? So this is going to have a huge impact. As Reggie says, we are waiting to hear what the, what the president of the United States says along with the other G7 countries. They are in discussions, including Canada, right now. So that to happen in the next couple of hours. Keep it tuned in for here for the very latest on that. Up next, though, we also want to focus on people who are from Ukraine. And maybe they're not in Ukraine right now, but they are hearing about what is happening. They are worried about friends and family. This is Mornings with Simi. Watching what is unfolding in Ukraine must be incredibly difficult, If that, especially if that is where you are from. How must it feel to be here in BC all alone, knowing that your family is back there right now? Well, that is the case, actually, for our next guest. Lisa Penchenko is a Ukraine citizen currently here on a work permit in BC. Lisa, thank you for joining us this morning. Um, thank you. <laughs> Thank you once again. Have you been able to talk to any of your family members? Yeah, they're currently in um, Odessa, right on the Black Sea. Uh, it's very tough right now, but I've been able to talk to them. So we don't lose the connection. That's the most important point. Right. Are they are they concerned about what is happening? What have they heard? Uh, they're very concerned, and they're hearing bombs around the house. So pretty much, it's it's pretty far, but still they're hearing it. Lisa, what is this like for you? You're you're so far away, and knowing what is happening, this must be very stressful for you. 
Yeah, there's no sleep on there. <laughs> I can't sleep at all, for real. Um, the entire night, I was just searching and continuing reposting because honestly, the only thing that people do right now is just really share on social media and all over the world. It's not just Ukraine, it's not just Russia, it's really all over right now. It's from pandemic straight up to World War Three, in my opinion. When you was this being talked about in Ukraine with your family, with their friends in the community, was this a fear that that this could happen? Uh, yeah, um, it's been quite a few. Well, the war started eight years ago, right? It was 2014. That's when it started, and right now it's literally escalated to the point where, uh, sorry, I'm going to be straight up. Putin literally wants to cut our land into pieces and. There is always blood on our soil, which is ridiculous to the point where the capital pretty much was taken right now yeah. a few hours ago. So, yeah, it's, it's a lot of pain. It's a lot of it's, a, it's just a lot of pain. Yeah, it must it must feel surreal to you. What can people do to help? Share. Really, like, there's nothing that people can do right now. Like, I, I can't send any troops from anywhere. <laughs> I don't have an ability, but the only pe- thing that people can do right now is just share all over the world. The people need to know the truth. That no one wants to, no, no one asks for help, as Russia says on their news. Right. So you just want everybody to share the information about what is happening to know what's going on in Ukraine. Exactly. And are you gonna? When are you gonna try to get a hold of your family again? Um. Well, I hope I'm not gonna lose the connection, but I call them every like twenty minutes or so. Oh boy. Okay. So, are they getting ready to leave? Are they staying? What are they planning to do? I. The borders are closed. There is no way to leave the country, and country is completely invaded. Like, we were thinking that it's going to be just a part of it, but it's all over. That's the main issue right now. Mm-hmm. Um, no one is leaving. We are fighting for our soil. Lisa, listen, good luck. I'm, I'm hoping the best for your family there. We'll check back in with you, but good luck, okay? Thank you once again. We are thinking of you. That is Lisa Penchenko, Ukraine citizen here in BC on a work permit. Her whole family is back in Ukraine, though, in Odessa, as you heard her say, and trying to connect with them and talk to them as, as often as she can every 20 minutes, half an hour. Uh, and and they're feeling trapped, and understandably so, given what you see happening in Ukraine right now. So what will the world do in response? That is the big question. This is Mornings with Simi. Paul, this morning, there's a lot of discussion right now, Raji, about how people can support Ukraine. Yeah, a lot of people are waking up today, obviously worried about the Ukraine, but also wondering what's happening in Vancouver to show support for peace there. And there's going to be a rally today at the Vancouver Art Gallery. It's happening at noon. All are welcome. I talked to the rally organizer, Irina Shiroka, and she's the president of the Ukrainian Canadian Congress Vancouver branch. She said the Ukrainian community here are understandably frustrated. They're worried. I am speechless. 
I think barely any Ukrainians left last night. Uh, Ukrainians in Vancouver were out um, doing a car rally yesterday night um, in response to the Putin statements from two days ago. And by the time we got home, the horrible news broke and uh, it's been devastating since then. Um, I called my parents in Ukraine right away. I called my brother. Um, everyone is in shock. People are paralyzed. Uh, they are they are staying at homes. They are uh, listening to the media outlets and um, listening to the government um, instructions and are ready to do what they are told. Yeah, Irina said that uh, their community invites anyone and everyone to come show support for Ukraine today at the Vancouver Art Gallery at noon. She wants people to wear blue and yellow, bring signs of support. They really hope to catch the attention of the Canadian government to be very firm against what Russia is doing. But she said that what's happening in Ukraine is not new to their community. But when the news of the invasion came through last night, it did still end up surprising them. It's, uh, you know what, you never, you never believe till the end about that, that you'll be attacked, right? You are told the intelligence were telling, were uh, showing that uh, the invasion was going to happen. And we've been screaming, we've been yelling about it in, in Canada, in, in the world. I mean, the, uh, uh Ukrainian community. Uh, we've been talking about it for a while, but, um, Russia obviously has been denying their plans. And um, you always hope, there's always hope that, uh, you know, all these facts that show you um, that the invasion was going to happen will never happen. Because, I mean, we've gone, my nation has gone through the, the Second World War. There are still people, my grandparents still remember, they, they watched the, the Great War um, on their backyard. And uh, they never thought that. <laughs> They will, they'll, they'll have to uh, go through the war again. They were going for, you know, they were hoping to raise their grandchildren in a peaceful country, independent country, but uh, this is not going to happen. And today we hear um, the, the bombarding, the missiles attacks. People are reporting that their, their windows are shattering. They are afraid to uh, go out on the streets in Ukraine. Um, the air, the airports are burning. The, um, Military stations are um, under attacks too. But um, as per the news, uh, I can tell that uh, Ukrainian forces uh, have been successful in defending our territory so far. Zelensky has said that the Ukrainian people are very strong. They have a determination to resist. What is your hope? I do. I do agree with Zelensky as our president that Ukrainians have fought for so many, for hundreds of years for their independence and this is not the first time this is not a this is not a surprise we've been resilient and we've been fighting against the russian aggression for for many years in in addition to our emotional and mental resistance we need the world support we need the military support we need the physical support to stand up against the russian aggression the russian colonial power uh, we need the world to to help us to finally defeat our country and set peace on the uh, European soil. 
that, you know what, my heart breaks when I hear this because you just think people, they were so afraid of this for years and now they they pretty much watched it unfold over the last couple of weeks. Yeah. And, um, you know, those sanctions arguably could have come earlier. I don't know enough about geopolitics to say for sure, but um, sanctions are slow to work. Uh, Even when they are big ones, hard hitting ones, they are slow to work. Uh, And if an invasion has already started, um, it's already doing harm to society, to civilians and endangering lives. So, um, of course, Ukrainians are wanting more than just sanctions. They want the the world to get involved in terms of military um, support. Is that actually going to happen? Um, so very tough time for Ukrainian community everywhere, including here in Vancouver. And again, those details, Simi, for the rally that's being organized today, that's at the Vancouver Art Gallery. It's at noon. And uh, as I was talking there to Irina Shiroka, she's the president of the Ukrainian Canadian Congress of Vancouver branch. And she was saying that they just really want to get as many people out there to flood the streets and, and show support enough that the government pays attention. Well, that's the big key, right? Will the government pay attention? Do you get the feeling there's a lot of organization going on right now among local Ukrainians? Yeah, I do. So this one was pre-planned. However, because of what happened uh, with the with um, Russia's announcement late last night here, um, they kicked it into gear and they are hoping that the um, rally will be a lot bigger now as a result of, of how quickly things are advancing. And so they're getting the word out that much more. Sounds like it. All right, Raji, thank you. Thank you so much, Simi. So Raji Sohal there talking about the president of the Ukrainian Canadian Congress, their Vancouver branch. There will be rallies. I know there. We've talked to as well several people this morning who are Ukrainian living here in Vancouver. Our our guest just before the 8 o'clock news there was talking about how she has family in Odessa and she's been calling them every 20 minutes, half an hour, as often as she can. And they are scared and they are, you know, at home, doors closed, windows closed, just like hoping for the best, but they don't know where to go or what to do. And she asked her, what is the best thing that we can do to help? And she said, share, share the information, talk about it, respond to it, but share the information about what is happening. This is Mornings with Simi. You've been hearing in the news about how British Columbians are generally going to now be receiving access to COVID-19 rapid tests to take home. This is a process. It's going to be starting on Friday. It will happen over several weeks. But there are questions about, you know, when are you going to be able to access those tests for yourself? So we thought, let's ask those questions of our health minister. Adrian Diggs joins us now to talk more about that. Thank you for being here. Hey, good morning, Simi. Okay, so this is pretty significant. We've waited a long time for this. What has taken so long to get to this point? Uh, The number of tests. So we've delivered uh, about 15 million tests so far, Uh, more than 2 million to long-term care homes to support uh, visitation, to support workers and keeping people safe there. Millions more to healthcare, both at testing sites and the healthcare system, and then to all the other priorities, including rural and remote areas, which have received about 2 million indigenous communities and so on. So we're using all the rapid tests and now we're getting sufficient supply that we're able to go broadly. So last week, um, we started distributing about 6 million rapid tests to schools, K-12 and post-secondary education, so that children will have access to rapid tests. And we're going to start distributing them through community pharmacies uh, and uh, some amazing work being done by the BC Pharmacy Association and community pharmacies to people across BC. It's going to be done by age. So the first group of people that 
people have access when they start to come into community pharmacy will be people 70 and above. They're the ones most at risk from COVID-19, and we want to distribute them so that we're not seeing, we hope, massive lineups so, so that that group of people get access. And then as more rough tests come in from the federal government, we'll start distributing them to those uh, under 70, and we'll go down through the population, just as we did really with vaccination, as you recall, in uh, 2021. Okay, so how will somebody access this? What do they have to show? How's this going to work? Go to, go to the pharmacy, date of birth, because it's 70 and above, right? Uh, personal health numbers. So we're limiting you to going and collecting one every 28 days. So personal health numbers that they'll have to show, and obviously their name. So it's one kit per person within a 28-day period. That's right. And it'll start with those over 70. And, you know, I think people uh, are used to this now. We know that people over 70 are the most vulnerable. So then first, and then uh, as rapid tests come in, and we're expecting approximately 3 million a week over the next four weeks, right, from the federal government. Uh, You know, sometimes they arrive uh, sooner or later than we'd like, but 3 million a week. And as those come in, we'll distribute those as well. Right now, we're in a good position with all of those key priority areas, long-term care and the others I discussed. So they've received enough for a period in advance, and now we can we can turn to this and provide uh, more broad access to free rapid tests uh, across uh, across everybody. So how long are these tests good for? For instance, if people want to hold on to these for, say, the next cold and flu season coming up this fall, I know Dr. Henry has been warning about that. Can we do that? Yeah, we'll be, you'll be able to hold on to them. The idea is not to use them just for using them, you know, uh, or to dry them out. The idea to use is to use them when you're symptomatic. So the advice hasn't changed. And uh, so what, so you don't, you're not going to pick them up because you're symptomatic. You're going to pick them up because you're over 70 and you have access and you want to have them with you. And they'll be, um, they'll be uh, usable for some time. Uh, a little bit depend on the, uh, the rapid test when uh, they might expire, but all that information will be available for everybody. Okay. And can you pick one up for another person? You can. You need, again, uh, their information. So if, uh, say, I was going to pick one up for my uh, my mom, I won't mention her age, but she's over 70, uh, then uh, I would need her date of birth, her personal health number, obviously her name, and then that would be limited for them. So they would be able to bring them home and have them available for them uh, if they need them. And uh, this is, uh, again, um, a good way to distribute to the people uh, most vulnerable first and then others. So we're focusing on supporting education on the one hand. And so you're seeing the distribution of about 6 million rapid test education. And on the other hand, uh, our most vulnerable starting with our seniors and then going through the population. Is this part of that process that I know Dr. Henry's talked about, you've talked about in terms of we're going, we have to learn to live with COVID even if it flares up again? Well, we do have to, and we have been for two years. So I don't think uh, I don't think it's starting, but we're going to have to continue to. Um, but this is also the availability of those tests. So in Canada, that's the federal government that's been in charge of procurement of things such as rapid tests and uh, and vaccines, obviously. And so the rapid tests are available now in sufficient numbers, and their take-home tests. So the take-home tests were essentially validated in Canada in December or so. And uh, and uh, so these take-home tests mean that you can take them home. You don't need a health practitioner to apply the test. We still have about 558,000 tests, which uh, which um, you need a health practitioner for, and obviously we're not sending those home. And so this is uh, an improvement in the technology of rapid tests and the availability of them that makes them uh, available now. But yes, 
uh, they'll be useful for people. Uh, I think one of the frustrations people have when I talk to people about rapid tests, it's there are all kinds of issues and limitations for them. But what people say is it gives them a feeling and a measure of control. And, uh, and, and as long as everyone understands those limitations, I think that's important. So, yes, we do have to do that. And um, that's why we've taken overall right. a balanced approach to this and why we've taken it from the beginning. We've had, it may feel like we've changed measures a lot in BC, but we've changed them a lot less than other jurisdictions. And the result has been, I think, uh, positive for BC society as a whole. What are you seeing in terms of the Omicron numbers? And are we continuing that kind of downhill slide trajectory? Yes, we are. I mean, we had uh, about 650 people in hospital, which is one measure yesterday. Remember that the height, it was about 1,060. So that's a significant decline. We reported on healthcare workers sick, which is a measure across the society, so days ill, which has dropped from about 17,800, 17,100 to 15,400 last week to 14,500 this week. So that's coming down. But it's different in different parts of the province. So test positivity is more than twice as high in the interior, in the north, and on Vancouver Island than it is in the two metro Vancouver health authorities. So we're still seeing a very significant number of people uh, getting sick. And look, 653 people in hospital, in a hospital system that has about 9,229 base beds, 653 additional people on top of everyone else, that's still a lot of people. So it's still a very significant challenge for our healthcare system. And yesterday, Simi, when I talked about surgical postponements, almost all those surgical postponements yesterday were in interior health, which is still facing some really profound COVID challenges. What do we attribute that to, is that they've consistently had these higher numbers? Yeah, I mean, well, for a long period, it was the north, of course, and we had to transport uh, 119 COVID-19 patients who are in critical care from the north to the south and as you recall, you know, October, November, and December. So the north and the interior have consistently had uh, higher rates of, uh, of hospitalizations really since the summer. Uh, partly that's linked to lower rates of vaccination in those regions, which have a significant impact. And that impacts, that has an impact on the healthcare system as well, overall, because there's more um, uh, more circulating virus and more people uh, uh, sick uh, with COVID-19 with severe illness. You're 30 times more likely to be in critical care if you're unvaccinated than if you're vaccinated. So that's a difference. But, you know, the, the pan- pandemic has also uh, changed and been different in different regions at different times. Vancouver Island has a relatively high level right now, but through most of the pandemic, it had the lowest level in all of BC. So there is that there is um, uh, in trajectory these things they go up and then they come down as as you know and uh, but in general they've been higher since most people got vaccinated in the summer of 2021 they've been higher in the north and in the interior and that's really caused some significant challenges there well thank you so much for the information this morning Hey, right. Anytime. Take care. eh? You too. That's Adrian Dix, BC's health minister, explaining the distribution of the rapid test, how that's going to work starting on Friday. Uh, And yes, you will get your turn. One test every 28 days is what you can access when it is your turn to do so. And of course, they will let us know when that happens. Right now on Friday, it will be people over the age of 70 will be able to access those.